Well, uh, last week uh, you had some fun with uh, some blessings and some curses and standing up and, and uh, reciting those. Um, nothing, nothing like that this morning, but we do continue our march through the book of Joshua. So please turn to Joshua chapter 10. We've kind of hopped around recently, um, Mother's Day and Father's Day and going backwards last week. So we are in Joshua chapter 10 as we continue to make our way through this book in this series that we've called Following His Lead, Stepping Out in Faith for the Faithful One. So as you get to Joshua 10, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word and we'll read the first 28 verses. (laughs) And if you don't want to stand that long, you can stay seated. But we would like to, to read through this, get the gist of the story, and then dive back in and see what the Lord has for us this morning. So Joshua chapter 10, we will start in verse 1 and make our way through verse 28. Here's what the Lord has said. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors, so... Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmuth, to Yaphia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Bet-Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Bet-Haran, The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ayalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies." Is this not written in the book of Yashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. 
when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmut, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Machedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Machedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. There's a lot to do. Let's ask the Lord to guide our time this morning. Father, thank you for these dear ones you have brought this morning. Lord, we think of the church in Endicott that has um, just met, probably still milling around the sanctuary. Lord, I pray that you would um, give Fred and Cinda and their core group their strength and energy to follow up on VBS. Lord, we ask that as um, Joe prayed for the seeds that have been planted to be watered, and God, that you would bring the growth Thank you for the encouragement that um, this trip was. Lord, thank you for the the people here who were praying for us. Thank you for um, those who wanted to go but could not make it this time. Lord, we pray that we would continue to support the Endicott Bible Church and that you would give us opportunities to visit. Lord, we pray even for the Uganda team this summer as they prepare to go in August, that you would continue to be with them as they raise funds and as they prepare themselves for the work you have for them. God, this morning you have a work for us here in Joshua 10. So guide my words, uh, help us to listen and to hear. Lord, we want to feast with you today. You have prepared it for us. I pray that we would partake and be full and satisfied at the end. And Lord, that we would be uh, moved and called and motivated to go out from this place and to to live uh, like Christians, to live like those who have been changed, who have been made new in our jobs, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our hobbies, Lord, in our homes. Help us to be those type of people that you have saved and made uh, new. Lord, we pray this morning for anyone who does not know you, that this morning you would convict them of their sin, they would understand their place before a holy and righteous God, and that they would look to the cross where Jesus hung between heaven and earth to pay for our sins. And we meet on a Sunday because that Sunday 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. He now sits at your right hand, Father, and he intercedes for us. So God, we take from that strength and courage to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this is uh, an exciting series for me because we get to do maps and pictures and exciting things uh, from the land of Israel Uh, Ron has shown you some of those things as well, so we'll take a look at some of those this morning. But I've titled today's message, The God Who Fights For Us. And in a day and age when we know so much scientifically, when we have 
observed so many things in space and so many things under the microscope, we are tempted to move away from a supernatural worldview. That everything must have a natural and materialistic um, meaning and explanation. And certainly that is um, part of a good thing that God has given us the skills and the wisdom to observe. Um, Thank the Lord that many of our lives have been saved unknowingly by research in medicine. Um, And these things are observable and we can look into them. But there are some things that remain a mystery and one of them is in this passage today. The sun standing still. But before we get there, we're going to need to make some background moves and remember where we have been in the book before because we made a lot of progress. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going to have a sermon that covers about nine chapters, maybe more, of Joshua in one sermon because most of them are lists and things that we really don't want to read through in its entirety on a Sunday morning, uh, partially because we can't pronounce half of them. But what's going to happen is the, the action has been stretched out, and as we get into the story today and in the coming weeks, the action picks up quickly as we speed toward the end of the book of Joshua. I want you to look at Joshua chapter 10. We're introduced to a new character here in verse 1, and uh, we see his name is Adonai Tzedek. Adonai should sound familiar to those of you that have studied the Bible for a while, Uh, Adonai is a word that means my master or my Lord. Um, It is often used of the God of the Israelites, the God that we serve, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's interesting and slightly ironic about this is this, this king who is opposed to the Israelites, his name means my Lord is righteous. Tzedek is the, the name, the word that means righteous or just or right in Hebrew. And so this one coming against the people of God, his name is my Lord is righteous, which is ironic. What else is ironic is we know the, the, the scope of scripture. We know that he is the king of what city? Jerusalem. Is that, that play an important role in the history of the Bible? Yes, and this is actually the first time where we see the word Jerusalem. If you started in Genesis and you make your way through, it's the first time you've seen this word. You've seen the city appear in the story of Melchizedek. Interestingly, Zedek, Melchizedek. Uh, You heard him in in Genesis, and you've seen this city pop up twice, but never by the name here of Jerusalem. And so as we go through the scriptures, we know that just in a a few books later, a young man named David will conquer the city of Jerusalem and make it his capital, and one day, great David's greater son, Jesus, will die and rise again in the city of Jerusalem, where one day he will return to the Mount of Olives, split it in half, and rule and reign forever and ever. So Jerusalem's right at the heart of this thing. But at this point in the story, Jerusalem is a Canaanite city. It is occupied by the Jebusites, by a people that are opposed to God and his people. And so we see in this uh, first five verses a military alliance gathering against Gibeon. You'll notice you don't have any notes in your worship folder, so it just requires you to pay a little extra attention today and stick with me. Okay, so if you are taking notes, verses 1 through 5 is the Amorite alliance gathering against Gibeon. So you've got two A's and two G's. The Amorite alliance gathers against Gibeon. These Amorites... Um, come together under the leadership of this king of Jerusalem, Adonai Tzedek. And what we see here is this king is no fool. 
And he has seen what's happened across the land. He's seen the Israelites cross miraculously the flood stage uh, uh, Jordan River. He's seen them come in, have an interesting policy, a strategy of marching around a city for seven days and watching the walls crumble. He's seen them be defeated by I because they did not uh, seek the Lord. Then he's seen them go back and destroy I and the more important city of Bethel. And as the Israelites cross into the land, they begin to get a foothold. And the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Tzedek, is worried. He has seen, as you see in verses 1 and 2, what's happening. And he is fearing greatly. Why? Well, look at verse 2. Gibeon, which we talked about in chapter 9, was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than I. So it's a better city than the city they've already attacked and destroyed. And then it says this interesting note, and all its men were warriors. So this city that has men that are all warriors, nevertheless did not fight against Israel. What did Gibeon do? They made peace with Israel. They, they, they tricked them into a treaty, into an alliance. And so Adonai Tzedek sees what's going on here. He sees Israel conquering some cities, moving into the land, having the gall to go up into the land and go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and obey the Lord and do the blessings and the curses and set up an altar. He's seen them moving through the central part of Israel, of Canaan, and he is fearing greatly. So what does he do? He gathers an alliance of like-minded kings who are further away from the threat, to come up, verse 4, and to help him. And the idea here is they are going to attack one of their own. They're going to attack the city of Gibeon because Gibeon has turned on helping their fellow Canaanites and has made peace with Israel. Now, this, I hope, is a helpful picture. But you're going to have to strain your eyes a little bit. I know, if we turn off some lights, Don, will that help? Or This is fairly bright. What we see over here is the city of Jericho, and we see that uh, the children of Israel have climbed into the mountainous region of Israel. Remember, this is the Rift Valley. This is the deepest cut on the planet. This is below sea level. And the children of Israel have made their way to this, see this orangish? This is a plateau. This is the center of the, uh, of the, of the rise and fall of the nation of, of Israel, the land of Canaan. And you'll see just briefly, there's a lot of names here. What you need to focus on is Gibeon. Here is the city of Gibeon. And you're going to go south six or seven miles, and we have the city of Jerusalem. So Adonai Tzedek is six or seven miles from the Gibeonites. And not only that, but the Gibeonites have some other cities. They're a little uh, alliance of cities. And they, here's, a, here's an easier one to see. Here's I and Bethel which the Israelites have taken. They've conquered this land. They've also conquered Jericho. But Gibeon is uh, allied with Be'erot, Kiryat-Jerim, and Kephirah. So this little tetropolis, this four-city alliance, is just to the north and northwest of Jerusalem. Now you see why Adonai Tzedek is feeling the pressure. On his east, the Israelites have taken some important cities. They've also allied themselves with some important cities to the north while defeating some other cities to the north. An interesting thing to note is throughout history, even into World War I, the best way to attack Jerusalem is from the north. 
Okay, the best way, that's how the Romans attacked, um, that's how the Assyrians and the Babylonians attacked. And so uh, Adonai Tzedek sees that his northward glance just now reveals Israelite territory rather than Canaanite territory. So this is the situation that this king finds himself in. And so he gathers from the cities around him, which I did not find a, a good enough map immediately, so we'll see a map in a little ways. But what he's going to do is he's going to gather the biggest, best cities from the region. And so in a span of about 20, 30 miles, he's going to gather four other kings to join him in attacking the Gibeonites. Knowing that if he attacks the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites have signed a, a mutual defense treaty, in effect, with the Israelites. And so an attack against Gibeon is an attack against the Israelites. And so here comes this man whose name means my Lord is righteousness fighting against the children of Israel. If Jerusalem falls, the south is very, very fragile. So the southern part of Canaan will be uh, almost defenseless if Jerusalem falls. And so Adonai said it goes on the offensive. As we move through into verse 6, the scene shifts to Gibeon. And here the Israelites, verses 6 through 9, answer Gibeon's call. The Israelites answer Gibeon's call. And so Gibeon in verse 6 sends men to Joshua at Gilgal. Right? So on the map, just back down into the Rift Valley to Gilgal, where the Israelites have been encamped. And so these messengers come. They say, help, they're attacking us. And here is what Joshua does. In verse 7, he gets all his best warriors, he gathers his army, and he begins to move. Notice verse 8. The Lord is not absent from this move. The Lord is not absent like he was at I. The Lord says to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. What is the Lord doing with Joshua? He's not giving him new information. Flip back in your Bible a few pages to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Notice the phrases here and how they match up. Back in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, only be strong and courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. So the Lord is not giving Joshua a new word. He is reminding him of the word he's already given. The Lord has given Joshua a promise. And he's going to keep his promise. And so he directs Joshua's attention to months before, perhaps, or weeks. And looking back, say, Joshua, remember what I told you? still valid. It's still the same. And just a step aside into our own lives, isn't that exactly what we need? We do not need to search for a new word from the Lord. We have His promises. We have His promises. We know what the Lord has said to us. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the promise to Joshua is reiterated to the Christian church. Okay? That He's never going to leave us or forsake us. Quoted straight from Joshua 2,000 years, well, 1,400 years later to the Christian church. We have been given the word of the Lord and we must go back to it. We do not need to seek um, clouds in the sky that somehow spell out where college we're supposed to go to. 
what funds we should invest in for our retirement. We do not need to um, roll the dice. We have the word of the Lord and we have his church, his body, where we can seek wisdom. So we need to run to the word of the Lord. We also see that Joshua models, um, a, a, models integrity for us. Joshua is here going to keep his word to the Gibeonites. Even though they tricked him, even though Joshua should, should not have done what he did, now that his word has been given, he will keep his word. And he will show that he is a man of his word and that the nation of Israel will stand by their promises. This is a good reminder for us to be men and women of integrity that we stand by what we have said and what we have promised to do, we will do. Notice here in verse 9, an important fact. So sometimes we say we rest in God's promises, and that is very true. But that does not mean we sleep in God's promises. What we do is we, we have God's promises to buoy us, and then we act. God does not give us promises so that we, so that we are lazy. He gives us promises to move us. This is what one commentator said. The truth of God's sovereignty, rightly used, does not enervate, which I did not know what that word meant, so I looked it up. <laughs> and it means to, to take the vigor out of something, to, to remove the energy. So God's sovereignty does not enervate, but it energizes human response. Joshua hears a promise from the Lord, and he acts quickly. Look at verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. On the map behind me, look at Gilgal, look at Gibeon. That's 20-ish miles in one night, which is not unheard of. But they're not running across the coastal plain. They're not running across a fairly flat land from Huntington Beach to whatever's 20 miles inland. They are going through the land that looks like this. There are ravines and canyons and rivers and dry wadis. Um, this is the land of the Good Samaritan. This is where robbers beat up a man on his way in between Jerusalem and Jericho. This is the land where Jesus was tempted by Satan. This is the land where John the Baptist went out into the wilderness. So this is not just a, 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 a nice cruise. This is up and down through wadis, around mountains, up, and you're climbing from below sea level to about 23, 2400 feet above sea level in one night. Joshua hears the promise of God and he gathers his men and he acts. This is a good reminder for us that when we have been given a promise, when we remember a promise, when we're um, given a, a word from the Lord, from his word, that we ought to act. We ought to act. And man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, although a mystery in some ways, are not put at odds in the scriptures. God is sovereign, and we must, we must act. We must act, and God will work. And we must trust that that is the case. So they, they hike through the night, they attack Gibeon, and we get to the battle. And again, this is very interesting. In the age of Lord of the Rings and of these action movies, and we see the Hobbit coming out in three horrendously long <laughs> episodes, we see long gory scenes of battle. You'll notice the scripture almost always takes battles and they're over like that. Because 
because the point is not the flashing of swords and the blood being spilled and, oh, that was a great, uh, no. The picture here is God winning through his people. And so notice the brevity of the description of the battle. Verse 10, And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Bet-Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. Okay, that's one verse. And we just covered 30 miles. So this is one of my problems reading the scripture. I don't know if you have this problem. Um, We read things, and we just zip through, right? Because our mindset is, okay, that's 60 miles away. If I go roughly the speed limit, I'll get there in roughly an hour. We think in, in ways that we can move quickly. We flew from Spokane to Orange County yesterday, more than a thousand miles, and it only took a few hours. What we're talking about is we're talking about men with, with armor, with swords, with spears, and they're covering a long distance. And so we need to remember that when we read scripture, we have to engage our imagination, okay, to see what's going on here and to understand what the Lord has for us. But again, we're not given a lot of details about the battle, we are given a summary. And in verse 11, at the end, uh, verse 11 actually shows us who is fighting. And this is just so key to the passage. The Lord is the one who's fighting. Look at verse 10. The Lord threw them into a panic. And as they fled before Israel, verse 11, while they were going down the ascent of Bet-Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And this key phrase, there were more who died because of the hailstone than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Right? So after, in the aftermath, you know, the warriors are back in camp, like, how many guys did you get? How many guys did you get? Not many. The hailstones were taking them all out. So here's the children of Israel chasing after the Canaanites, and they're watching God. The wording here is even very interesting. The Lord threw down large stones. So the picture is a God in heaven who is throwing down stones at the Canaanites as they run. So imagine that as a warrior of the, of the Most High God. When you get back to camp, you don't have a lot to brag about. You don't have a lot to brag about because God did the work. Now, clearly Israelites killed some. We see that, but there were more who died. So if you're keeping tallies on the chalkboard, the Lord wins, okay? He kills more than the children of Israel. And something very important here that we see throughout Scripture too is that God is showing himself to be greater than the gods. We see this in the ten plagues in Egypt and in the Exodus. God systematically and explicitly is dethroning the major Egyptian gods. And the same thing here. These Canaanites mostly worshipped a god named Baal, or we say Baal. This Baal is kind of like Thor, all right? He's the god of thunder. He provides the rain. He provides what they need um, for their crops to grow. And here the Canaanites are fleeing a people who have a god that throws hailstones at them. Where's Baal? This is like the words of Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. Is he, is he sleeping? Is he, is he away somewhere? You need to wake him up. Where's your god? Where'd he go? And this picture is of the God of the Hebrews. Yahweh is actually the one in charge of the weather. Our God is in charge of the weather. And these people flee far, far away from the Israelites. We're going to get into more of this, but I want to bring this slide up right now. This shows you a little bit of the route of what's happening. So the Israelites 
run all night up to the mountains. They engage the armies near Gibeon. The Lord begins to throw down hailstones. And you can see uh, the fleeing as they go up and then down this very famous ascent. There's a road in Israel today that uses that ridge because it is an easy way to get through that part of the country. You can go right through those cities. I would not suggest it in a Jewish bus, but you can go down those cities through some Arab villages, and then you get down into the valley. Here's the Ayalon Valley, a very important one. You get down to Azekah, which overlooks where David killed Goliath. And so these people are fleeing for their lives. They are routed and running from the Lord and from his people. This is a reminder that throughout Scripture, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is the divine warrior which is at odds often with our concept of God as the kind of permissive, somewhat forgetful grandpa. This is not who our God is. Although our God is the kindest being in the universe, he is also a warrior, and he fights for his people as evidenced here. After the Israelites crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 15, the song that they sang says this, The Lord is a man of war. Or if you have the NIV or some other translations, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name, or Yahweh is his name. Isaiah 42 says, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. So this is the God that we serve, and this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Jesus. This is the God we serve. He fights for Israel, and it is no different today because he fights for us. And as we continue to move through this scene, we're actually brought to a very difficult passage and one I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because interestingly, the author of the book of Joshua, the human author, inspired by God, does not spend a lot of time trying to give us an explanation here. But this is one passage that atheists and skeptics will throw at you and attack with because this is utterly impossible. Look at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ayalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Continue on. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? Which is kind of like this substantiated. Didn't, didn't we write this down? This is a, a book we see in First Samuel that was kind of the record of what God and his heroes had done. Then it says this, The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And before I read verse 14, we've got some issues here. Um, because I looked up the science on this, and if the, if the earth stops rotating, I don't know if you know this, we're in a bit of trouble. We are, one, one author used frogs. I don't know, he must have liked frogs, maybe because they stick to things. He said, if the earth stopped rotating, the frogs would not be able to hang on to their lily pads. Okay, so, so how, how do we explain this? What's, what's going on? Um, the sun standing still. Well, we've got a few problems from our perspective because it's difficult for us to go back to, I'm sorry, 3,400 years ago and to understand Hebrew poetry to understand their purpose in narrative, to understand what exactly is being said depending on the language. And so there, there are pages and pages and pages written about this. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but here are some of the explanations that men of God who are believers, who value 
the inerrancy of the Word of God have suggested. The first one is that God stopped the earth from rotating, and because God is God, He can do that. Alright? Now, um, very carefully, I want to say what I'm going to read next is prefaced by this quote. This is not a question of whether God could do such a thing, but what He actually did. So we look back and we're asking, what did God do? And can we discern it from the text? So here are some suggestions. The daylight hours were extended. Okay? Um, Or that there was some kind of refraction of light to allow the sunlight to be up longer that day. Another one, which I think is actually valid, is if you look at some of the words here, you could translate these words a little bit differently, and it would actually um, become darkness rather than light that was extended. So you see in verse 12, when Joshua speaks to the sun and the moon, he says, sun stands still at Gibeon. Okay, so they're chasing the Canaanites along this ridge, and they look back east to Gibeon, and there's the sun. And they look west to Ayalon, to Agilon, to the valley there, and they see the moon. So the sun is rising and the moon is setting. All right? So this would be like me saying here in Garden Grove, okay, sun stands still at orange and moon in Seal Beach. Okay, that, that's kind of the, the, the picture that we have from these words. All right? And what some have said is that because there was an all-night march from Gilgal, the men of Israel are climbing up and they get to Gibeon about sunrise, that what Joshua may actually be asking for, based on some of the wording and how you translate it, is that the Lord would actually keep the sun from rising or cover the sun with clouds. Now, again, (laughs) um, we are suggesting some different ways of looking at this, but the clouds to me could make sense. Because what do we have the Lord doing to the army as they flee? Throwing down hailstones. Okay? Hail coming from um, the clouds that are above. Now, there's, there's a danger here. And you're already thinking it. <laughs> there's a danger that we're trying to twist God's word into something that we can understand and something that we can explain because we have modern science and these people were just a bunch of hicks. They didn't know anything because they lived 3,400 years ago. Okay? But we know science. Just like the church did in the time of Galileo and Copernicus, right? (laughs) Okay, so we should take some caution here and be humble about how we look at this. Um, Another uh, one that has been suggested is that the passage is figurative and it is celebratory and that is hyperbole. If you go back to the book of Judges, there is a battle and after the battle, this is Judges 4 and 5, after the battle there is a song sung and in the song it talks about the stars battling against the Canaanites. In the story before it, there's no mention of stars or anything heavenly participating in the fight. So the, the suggestion is that this is figurative and that it seemed like the day lasted longer. <laughs> I think what we have to do when we come to this passage is see what the Lord said in the passage. Okay? Can God do with His created order what He wants? Yes. Okay, this is the picture of the potter and the clay. The clay doesn't go, hey, what are you doing to me? Right? The the potter says, you're the clay. I get to make you the shape I want. Okay? So this is the God that we believe in. We also believe in the God who uses nature. So when we watch movies and shows about the crossing of the Red Sea, right? Charlton Heston or whoever the guy was in the Bible miniseries last year, right? They get to the edge of the water and, right? And the water, 
and there's water going up and special effects and everyone's like, wow, it's crazy. And you go and read in the scriptures and there was an east wind that blew all night the night before. <laughs> but that's not good for special effects, so we won't mention that. Our God uses things. He uses means. He uses people. He uses weather. And sometimes he makes things new, like water into wine. Okay? Like a dead body coming back to life. And so, in, in what God has revealed to us here, we know that God miraculously provided a way for the Israelites to pound the Canaanites into submission as he promised he would do. The point of the passage is shown to us in verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since. And you would expect him to say, when the sun stood still. But what he says is, what makes this day unique is that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So the point of the passage brought out by the author is not so much the sun standing still as that God listened to a prayer and answered. And then God fought for Israel. The point of the passage is more focused on what God did for his people than on the scientific explanations. That does not mean we shouldn't look into them. But what happened here is God intervened for his people to keep his promise that he had made. And if we are a church that believes that on Easter Sunday and every Sunday we celebrate a dead man who came back to life then we don't have an inexplicable problem here in this passage. Because if Jesus is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, and he's coming back again with holes in his, in his hands and his feet and his side, then this is not that big of a problem. And we don't have to know the answers to everything. Right? Some of us, we think we can't defend the Bible, or we can't evangelize, or we can't do apologetics, because we don't know how to talk about this scientifically, and someone else does. Okay? Our, our trust and our faith is not in science. Our trust and our faith is in the God of science, which enables us to study science with confidence because science and faith do not conflict. Where they conflict, it is, uh, it is, uh, is in us uh, a defect, a problem that we can't overcome. But we believe in the God who made science. So there's a lot more that we could be said there. And we could spend a lot of time debating. I would would encourage your questions to sharpen me on this and to sharpen each other. But what we see in verse 14 is the Lord fighting for Israel. Verse 15 seems to be a weird place. Look at verse 15 and then if you have it on the same page or it's on another page, flip over and look at verse 43. 15 and 43. What do you see? The prince too small, Mary? (laughs) 15 and 43 are the same. Okay? And this would make, this would be really weird because in verse 14, the Israelites are chasing. There's hailstones flying from the sky. And they go back to Gilgal. And then in verse 16, all of a sudden we're way back here. We're fighting in Makedah. So a very clear explanation here is actually this is probably a scribal error. And that verse 15 does not belong there because it was in 43 and someone made a slight mistake that does not affect the meaning of the passage. So we'll continue to move on. If you have questions about that, please ask me later. Verses 16 through 28 continue the pursuit of the Canaanites. And just to quickly get there, you'll see that the five kings actually kind of, they see what's going on generally. Sometimes kings would not participate in the battle. They'd be there with battle armor on, but they would watch 
um, as their armies fought. And so these five kings go, whoa, this is not looking good. Let's run. And they all, in their chariots or on foot or on their horses or whatever, they get to Makedah. So this, it's been a long day, okay? Regardless of our understanding of the sun standing still, they are on the, they're fleeing and they get to Makedah. And this is a part of the region of Israel that has caves everywhere. They used to call it the land of the thousand caves. And our guide in Israel last year said, now they call it the land of a million caves. Because they keep finding more. Um, Amy and I have climbed through a bunch of caves in this region. You just, people just made caves to hide and outlaws and um, rebels. And there's caves everywhere. So the kings get to a cave and they say, uh, this looks like a good place to hide, which in retrospect probably was not a good idea. But they get in the cave. Word gets to Joshua, verse 18, that they've hidden themselves there. And so he says, well, hey, just take some rocks and put it over the front. <laughs> they can't get out, right? So let's not stop pursuing the enemy just because five kings are in there. Let's go kill their armies and then we'll come back and take care of them later. All right, so these kings who had the gall to attack the Israelite army have now um, hidden themselves in, what, in a place that will lead to their downfall. And then in verse 19, Joshua gives encouragement to his army and says to pursue them. And in the theme we've seen all chapter long, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, and all the people returned safe to Joshua at the camp at Makedah. So what you have is you have a consistently deteriorating retreat from the armies of Israel. And so as we get further south, we see that some have fled to Azekah and further on to the Philistine plain. Some have fled south, and the army is scattering. It's been shattered, and people are just running for their lives. They attack and they destroy, they wipe them out. The ones that survive just kind of get to whatever city they can get to. As we move in the narrative, and we have to move quickly, Joshua goes back to the cave, brings the five kings out, and in something that seems rather um, primitive to us, perhaps, and uh, violent, brings out the five kings, and he has his generals come and stand with their feet on the necks of these kings. This is another symbolic picture to show the people of Israel, the army gathered around, that God has done what he said. He said, I've given them into your hand, and here they are with generals' feet on the feet, feet on their necks. And so they're summarily executed, and then Joshua does what he's already done to the king of Ai, and they put them up on a tree to display for all to see. This is said in Deuteronomy 23, and this is actually used of Jesus in Galatians, is that um, he who hangs on a tree is accursed. So the picture is, God did it. Look what happens when you try to stand up against the God of the Israelites. It's not long and drawn out, though, because as the sun goes down, they bring the bodies, they bury the bodies, and then another thing we've seen in Joshua, they put a bunch of stones on them, and voila, we have another memorial. Another way to remember God's actions for his people. As we get to the end, Joshua reminds them as the feet are on the necks, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. See, Joshua's getting it. He's getting it. The Lord keeps telling him this and he's passing it on to his people. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. 
And then at the very end of our passage, verse 28, which will lead us into the rest of chapter 10 and chapter 11 next week, is they take another city, Makedah. And if you glance down, you'll see that more of these cities are taken and captured, and the south is one for Israel. As we end, I just want you to look. One beautiful way of studying the Bible is just to pay attention to themes, to repetitions, right? To things that are said over and over. I want you to listen. Don't look. Listen to me read some select verses from the passage from today. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Two verses later, And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. One verse later, The Lord threw down large stones from heaven. There were more who died because of the hailstone than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. Verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 19, the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Verse 25, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. What's, what's going on in this passage? All we have to do is look. The Lord fights for his people. The Lord shows up and he fights for his people. We are promised in the New Testament that the Lord has not changed. There have been uh, there has been a, a, a shift since Jesus, but the Lord still fights for his people. Now, we're not called to take up arms and go on a holy crusade. We're called to take up the sword of the Spirit, shield of faith, okay, the armor that God has provided. And we are to fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We've been given weapons. We need to use those weapons. And God fights for us. We see as we look throughout the Old Testament that God's, the New Testament, that God is still doing this, albeit in slightly different ways. God still fights for his people. Take courage this morning as you think about today and as you go through the week that God fights for his people. The cosmic battle that has been raging since Satan convinced our first parents to eat from the fruit of the tree that they were told not to, this battle is raging but it has, in effect, been won. So what's happening on the cross? What's happening in the empty tomb as we gather here on a Sunday? What's happening is what 1 John 3, 8 said, that Jesus, the Son of God, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy is not a nice word. Okay, This is a shattering word, a violent word. In Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus, through death, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus is a warrior. Jesus, in the, the most ironic twist in all of literature, goes onto a cross, allows himself to be slain, and in that slaying, slays the devil. The devil is beaten. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It's over, it's complete, it's done. So this morning, if you have not yet come to this warrior God, this warrior Jesus, who will fight for you, then this morning you need to get with God's program because he offers forgiveness of sins. He offers peace with himself. He gives adoption into God's family. He gives eternal life, living water, an easy yoke, a light burden. Where else can you get this? Nowhere. This is our God. He commands us to repent of our sins, to believe in the gospel, the good news that Jesus died in our place for our sins as a substitute. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And so Christians, this morning we are reminded that we're called to freedom. 
We've been freed not to re-enslave ourselves. We've been called to be free to help free others. And in this verse that helped us think about how we were to serve in Endicott, I'll end Galatians 6, 9, and 10. The words to the Galatian church is the words to Village Bible Church. Let us not grow weary of doing good. But in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters, our God fights for us. Part of the problem is us not recognizing him fighting for us. Let's remember that he does. Let's intercede and ask him to do so in ways that we can see and that we can follow in his steps. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you fight for us because we need it. We're weak. We tend to uh, fold in on ourselves. We defend ourselves when we're hurt. We are wounded sometimes. And so we think that we have to provide for ourselves instead of turning to you. Lord, forgive us for that idolatry. Help us rather to see that you are the warrior who fights for us. You are our captain. um, And you arm us for battle that we may do battle with Satan and his demons. Lord, you've equipped us to do that. We follow in your train as you fight Satan and as you work to defeat him. Lord, we pray that we would see that here in this church. We pray that we'd see that symbolically as people are baptized, as they follow you. Lord, we we hope that, that this year that you will save many kids at VBS. Lord, we pray for um, uh, missions like CEF, Child Evangelism Fellowship, and their ark at the fair this summer. Lord, we pray for opportunities in our neighborhoods. We pray for opportunities at Reality Check and Friday Night Alive and Sunday School and Children's Church. Lord, we pray for all of these things, that you would help us follow you in battle. And Lord, that you would show yourself to be faithful and true as you've promised to be. Guide us and help us to, to love you well and to love those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.